Yes, the world of motorsport has had an eventful past week, but one thing remains truly, truly strong and stable in the motorsports world, and that's Motorsports 101, because I am still in power, and your friendly host, Andre Harrison, still remains, sadly, not on the show. Hopefully, Dre will be back soon. Wherever you are, Dre, probably at a William Hill betting shop right now. Stay strong, man. Yes, welcome back to Motorsport 101, and yes, your host, Ryan King, is still the host. Dre has not returned to power. The Coalition of Chaos is still in control of this government. And let's run the show. We have a returning Coalition member this week, Matt Carnero from MSTF1. How you doing, Matt? Hi, everyone. Six times. Six times! <laughs> We're gonna, you're gonna run out of fingers soon. <laughs> Gonna run out of fingers soon. And new member of the Coalition of Chaos, Josh Bond. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll say good afternoon. Yes, good afternoon. Uh, and, and to all those uh, listening in the UK where it may still be very hot, uh, same. Okay, and someone decided to celebrate in their Porsche down my street. Well, I mean, they've got a lot to celebrate about. I mean, yeah, true. An off-the-shelf yes, car, you know, they beat, they, they, they beat that. Um, yeah. Well, <laughs> my Toyota is just sadly sitting in my driveway. <laughs> uh, at least it runs. <laughs> yes, at least it runs. But yes, again, if you're a fan of the show, you can, subsi- you can, <laughs> you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Motorsport underscore 101 and you could also follow our fan page on instagram there's a fan page now? there is yeah yeah i know it was, it was new to me some person created it and i'm giving it the thumbs up it's pretty good yeah I'll, I'll investigate that after this very important coalition meeting yes and before we head into the tremendous weekend Lamont, uh the the amount of FIA provisional calendars has, that has come out, and there may be a new street circuit on the IndyCar calendar for 2019. First, we're gonna see what else happened in our little worlds and keeping it 101. And I think me and Matt, we're gonna talk about something that was, uh, I don't want to say good, controversial. It, it, it was good in moments. It was yes, it was controversial. Yeah, very. We're talking about. The WWE's event that happened over the weekend, Money in the Bank, and yes, we are going to talk about pro wrestling. It's been a, it's been a long, long time mm-hmm. since we talk about pro wrestling on the show, but we we just have to talk about it. <laughs> I, I honestly so, can't wait. <laughs> so, so so Matt, give us a brief rundown of what was, what was scheduled to take place during Money in the Bank last week last weekend last Sunday. Last Sunday. Yeah, so um the first match on the card was the uh the women's Money in the Bank ladder match which was the first of its kind. The rules are you have to climb a ladder, you have to get a briefcase which has a a championship contract. In this case it's the SmackDown Women's Championship contract. 
which is which means that then you can cash it in and get a championship match anytime you want with the with the yes. with the champion. And when we mean anytime, it is literally anytime. All you need to do is have the briefcase, have a WWE official, and you can have a match against the champion at any moment in time. But Conveniently, to storyline purposes, it always happens during a televised WWE event. <laughs> I mean, well, uh, it could happen at a house show or anything like that, but uh, no one's going to watch Then What's the fun? No, no, I, I want the old school 24-hour hardcore rules. The <laughs> 24-7 like, rule. <laughs> oh, they're in, their, they're in their hotel room. They're asleep. Get the official in here. Here's my contract. I want the belt now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's fight in the kiddie pool. Yeah. That <laughs> was fun in the kiddie pool. But again, the first ever woman's Money in the Bank match had a very controversial ending, to say the least. Yeah, so, yeah, every, everyone was doing fine in that. Uh, the, the people in the match were um, Becky Lynch, they were Tamina, Natalia, Charlotte Flair, and uh, Carmella with James Ellsworth, who's her manager. So uh, how it ended was uh, everyone was basically down for the count, but Carmella was in the ring and she was uh, she had just fallen off the the ladder because Becky Lynch pushed her off, and then James Ellsworth pushed Becky Lynch off the ladder as well, and then James Ellsworth rushes to to her aid, like uh, like shaking her, like go climb climb up the ladder, and then as he does that, he realizes wait I can do something here. So what he does is he goes up the ladder, he detaches the briefcase himself and drops it down to Carmella. And so, yeah, the, after that, the bell rings and the, the, the referees are confused. They're all ta- arguing over that. And during that, Ellsworth gets the, the microphone from the announcer and he announces Carmella as Miss Money in the Bank. And then the music, the, her music plays and that's it. <laughs> that's the end of the match. <laughs> so Yeah, that's the end yeah. of the match without climbing the ladder, without getting the briefcase herself. Carmella wins the match because James Ellsworth climbed the ladder and literally drop the briefcase into her lap. Yes. So that, that sounds like mm. a fairly major uh, fairly major loophole in the rules there. It is pretty major. Uh, uh, I believe it's happened it, before with women managers to men, but like I don't think it I don't remember if it actually worked in that case. Cuz like I, um, I, I haven't seen a lot of the, the, the bank matches. Yeah, the closest comparison that, like, I was talking to my brother, who was also a big wrestling fan, mm-hmm. and the closest comparison we could find to anything like that happening was, like, back in 2010, in, like, a three-way ladder match for the Intercontinental Championship, where Dolph Ziggler had won the match without actually climbing the ladder and grabbing the belt himself, where, uh, I forgot the two other competitors, I think it was Kofi Kingston and someone else, were fighting on top of the ladder. They detached the belt, but couldn't grab it themselves. It fell to the floor, and almost like in, like, an American football move, like it was like a fumbled football, like <laughs> Dolph Ziggler <laughs> dove on top of the belt and grabbed it and won the championship. <laughs> oh my god. Leap, I'm having that. Yes, but, like, just so you know, like, Ladder matches are technically no disqualification matches. Mm-hmm. So, like, no disqualification in wrestling terms means that pretty much anything besides, well, technically murder is illegal, but yeah. no one wants to do that. I mean, no one is stupid <laughs> technically enough Technically, every, yeah, no one's stupid enough to do that. Everything is legal, so someone could come in and interfere without breaking any rules. Yeah, so, uh, 
so yeah, the the main talking point about this whole thing is that this is a women's money in the bank match, so it would make sense for a woman to go and grab the briefcase. But instead, we had a man go up and climb the ladder, grab the briefcase, and drop it down to a woman. So uh, uh, the big complaint here is that <laughs> is that it's uh, a man doing a woman's job, doing a woman's job. Uh, yeah, like, so it's like taking it's, the spotlight it's away. It's going to be. It's going to be forever etched in history that the first Money in the Bank ladder match was won by a, a man dropping the briefcase into a lap of a woman. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Like, th- there's there's no way the WWE could, you know, retcon this to make it look better. No, that's what happened. <laughs> I mean, um... That is a, that is a very, very, very complaint. Like, when, when I was watching live, I was very angry at that fact because again it's a women's money in the bank match and uh but in a storyline way it kind of makes sense this is this is being this is playing a bit of devil's advocate but like uh carmela's a heel and uh james ellsworth is her puppet manager so it will make sense that she would cheat to win uh and yeah. that's exactly what ha- basically what happened james ellsworth climbed up come up and gave her the briefcase so she cheated but the thing is uh it kind of at, at the beginning it felt like a bit like a, a false finish. Like you would you would think that someone would come out like Shane McMahon or Daniel Bryan would come out and say no, restart the match. Uh, but that's not what happened, and people were left very confused. And the, the ending kind of fell flat in the end. So it, but it's, it, but uh, again like again restarting the match would have been very very awkward because then again you have to get an official to take away the briefcase from Carmella, yeah. then, you know, set up the ladder, climb it up, rehook it. There's like, okay, now we can restart the match. It's not like, just ring the bell and just restart it. And, like, it would have been really awkward, and it would have been, like, from a writing standpoint, because, again, pro wrestling is partially scripted, like, it would have been very clumsy writing to do that. Yes. Oh, I see, it's only partially. Oh. Yes. I, okay, so... Was this meant to happen then? This was. Oh yeah, it was meant. To, it was meant to happen. Oh, like, so they always meant for a man to help to win the women's. Ma- okay. Yes. Yeah, yes. This match in particular so was meant to happen. Someone wrote that. In. <laughs> so yeah, blame the writers. Don't really, don't blame really the the guys here as much. Like bl- blame like, the writers. But from like, out, like out of context from a writing standpoint, like again, Matt said it makes sense because James Ellsworth is like desperately in love with Carmella. Carmella, like, does not like James Ellsworth at all. So, like, it makes sense that James Ellsworth would try to do something to help Carmella out to try to, like, gain her affection. Yeah, but um, the 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 other problem here is always, like, I think this finish could have been accepted had it not been the first match of this kind for, yeah, if for, it was, for women. If, if it was because, the second one, people yeah, would have been fine. Yeah, if, if it were any other uh, Money in the Bank match, it would have been fine. But be, being that this is the first one, this is actually making history in the company, this is this was quite a big problem. This is also, this is my main problem with this, also. Yep, and... Uh, well, do we move on to the other matches in the, uh, in the night? I guess, uh, well... There, there, there's I don't think there's really much to talk about for the rest of the matches like I would say I would say there were only two other matches that are pretty much worth talking mm-hmm. about where it's like the probably the most the, the, the second most eventful thing to happen in Indian sports besides Felix Rosen <laughs> quest getting Mahindra's first win <laughs> yes yes Jinder Mahal defending the WWE championship against Randy Orton continuing the long 
well, seemingly long historic tradition of, yeah, the WWE isn't going to let you win in your hometown. <laughs> your hometown, yeah. I mean, Naomi kind of broke the tradition on, broke the tradition on WrestleMania, yep. which was uh, a breath of fresh air, but still, <laughs> it, it's a very long-going thing. Yes, Jinder Mahal defeated Randy Orton in his hometown of St. Louis in front of his uh, father, Cowboy Bob Orton, who's a WWE Hall of Famer. Like, and probably like, probably like one of the funniest endings where like, oh, um, Jinder Mahal's, you know, well, I'd say managers, the the Singh brothers, yeah. like taunt, taunt Cowboy Bob Orton sitting in the front row. Then Randy Orton gets out the rig and like completely destroys them. <laughs> But, uh, I mean, th there is a slight problem with this bit because it's basically a, a carbon copy of Backlash. They did the exactly same thing on Backlash, yep. including dropping one of the brothers on the commentary table in the exact same way. <laughs> yes. He picks them up and drops them on their back. And, like, basically the exact same thing happened. He comes back on the, on the ring, and then Jenna Mahal does his, like, the softest finish ever. Don't even know what's, what it's called. It's like <laughs> yes. a really soft rock bottom. He pins him in counts three, and... That's it. That's that's exactly that's the exact way he won the championship the first time, and then they do it again just just over less than a month later. Yeah, I I think they really just didn't know how to end this rivalry between Randy Orton and Jinder Mahal. They're just waiting for yeah. They were just waiting for someone to win the men's money in the bank <laughs> briefcase. I mean, it, it could be that they're going to put Baron Corbin there, but Baron Corbin's a heel, so no one's no one's gonna like like either man in this match to. Really, yes. and Mahal's title has been very messy. So really, people they don't really like him because of his gimmick, but they mostly don't like him because he they just don't think he should be there. And uh, what I think might happen that I read somewhere, there's a few rumors like maybe John Cena is gonna come back and then they're gonna defend it, gonna put it on the line of SummerSlam, and then John Cena wins all. That's what's gonna happen yeah. because John Cena is the pride of America. <laughs> the Pride of America. Yeah, the scene is returning on the 4th of July. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, it, uh, I think it would be the perfect time to move on to the main event, the, the Money in the Bank ladder match. And obviously we mentioned earlier that, that Baron Corbin won the match. And I think it's seemingly that he's going to be holding that briefcase for a very, very long time. He's not cashing that in anytime soon. No, this, no, this no, that doesn't seem like what's going to happen. But um, I'm still kind of, like, iffy. I don't know where it's, it's going to go. I can't really predict it. But, yeah, it's probably going to take a while for him to cash that in. But it was by far the best match of the night. Yes. Where it was Baron Corbin against Shinsuke Nakamura, AJ Styles, uh, Dolph Ziggler, uh, Kevin Owens, and Sami Zayn. And if if you're, you know... Even a casual fan of wrestling, like that, that match lineup in a Money in the Bank ladder match is probably, probably going to be your WWE match of the year. Yeah, might be. Uh, it's a, it's a, it was a very fun tease. Like, uh, Shinsuke is setting up the ladder, and then AJ Styles holds the ladder on the other side, and then they just set the, they, <laughs> they set the ladder aside. And then just start yes. just start <laughs> fighting each other, but they just, um, they just yeah. start you know that that almost movie like stare down yeah. where AJ Styles is, is adjusting his gloves and Shinsuke is adjusting his mouth guard, like hinting that yes, the rivalry that all you fans have been hoping for is finally going to happen. 
I mean, yeah, it happened before, but never mind that, right? It's going to happen on the WWE. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to happen in America, not yeah. in Japan. Yeah, who cares about New Japan, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but then again, like, oh, I, I wouldn't, it wasn't the best Money in the Bank match of all time, no. but it was certainly one to remember. Yeah, it had a, quite a few good spots. Sami Zayn was doing was doing really well in that match. I was hoping he was going to win because um, despite him losing yet again, he actually looked kind of strong in this case. The, the, the I don't know what do you really call it, a powerbomb maybe that he did on Ziggler for the, on, on the ladder. I don't know if that was actually an actual yeah, powerbomb. Yeah, where he pretty much... Yeah, he flipped over did, Ziggler did and flip, then... Yeah, flip over Ziggler and then slammed, <laughs> yeah, slammed him to the ground. On the, on the ring. Like, when when he landed, I thought he had he dislocated his foot because, like, he, he landed, like, a little bit awkward on his, on his right foot. And I thought he actually dislocated that, but, like, I was really happy to see that he was actually fine because <laughs> that looked insane. Insane. Yeah, really. and then... <laughs> The traditional him and Kevin Owens going at it for, like, a good five minutes. Like, that's always... Like, I know we've seen it time and time again, but him and Kevin Owens have the best matches. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, they're, uh, they're probably going to do the, the, the Zayn Owens thing again eventually, but, like, they're probably just going to keep teasing us over and over until it ends up happening. Like it might, they might do it for the U.S. title if they make Styles still not win uh, from still not beat <laughs> Owens, which 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 also reminds me, I don't know where the story is going anymore, but that's a whole different thing. It's just a yeah, yeah, that's a whole different thing. Like the the only thing that I just felt was lackluster in the match was pretty much the ending where Baron Corbin just climbs the ladder, takes the briefcase down, he wins. Yeah, everyone's just like. Did that really just happen? <laughs> Did that yeah, really just happen? Not just that. There was one more where he looked pretty stupid in the match earlier. Also, why? Because uh, on the beginning of the match, he took down Nakamura, and then Nakamura was out for like seventy-five uh, percent of the match. Uh, and oh then, my god! Yeah, and, yes. and then near the end, where Nakamura uh, does his Nakamura is doing his entrance before the match has even started, and then Dolph, uh, then uh, Baron Corbin runs out and basically just. Beats the shit out of him. Grabs a ladder, hits him a couple times with it. Grabs a camera from a cameraman, hits him with the camera. <laughs> yes, <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty brutal, pretty. But, it, but like, it was it was also nice because it fits his character. But yeah, anyway. So Nakamura yeah. comes back like near the end of the match, and um, uh, as Baron Corbin is about to climb the ladder alone in the ring, and what he does is he climbs down, folds the ladder, and tries to throw it at Nakamura as he's coming into the <laughs> ring. And surely well, enough. Nakamura kicks his ass. Yeah, that was incredibly idiotic. I don't know why he did that. But yeah, then again, should, wrestling should, doesn't follow logic. <laughs> yeah, wrestling does not follow logic. It's like, again, as, as I said, it's partially scripted. Like most, like most of their, the moves that they do in the match are are not really scripted at all. But they have like a couple of you know spots that they want to hit. A couple of of moves that that again like it. Partially, it doesn't make logical sense. Partially, it does make sense. Partially, it's like, yeah, I definitely want to use, you know, this really strong move that I always use to try to finish off my opponent because that makes sense in other sports. Mm -hmm. But again, it's like sometimes, why are you using that move? That makes no sense. <laughs> why are you literally trying? Like, yes, this person is running at me down the entrance ramp. Let me pick up this ladder and try to throw it at him. Yeah, this giant, just this giant ladder that you're gonna throw. <laughs> 
that are gonna flow over his head as he runs <laughs> under the ropes to get you. Well, then again, it was fun, entertaining, as wrestling should be. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. The, the important now thing is that we all have fun. <laughs> yeah, the important thing is we all have fun, and now it's time to just... That, that money in the bank reign of Baron Corbin, because I feel like he's just going to sit on that sit on that briefcase and not cash in that contract. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dear. So, from the world of professional wrestling, we're going to head into probably the biggest... Well, it is the biggest sports car race in the world. Some people would argue it's the biggest race in the world, period. The 24 Hours of Le Mans. Hooray! I think I can actually talk about <laughs> I mean, it was just as dramatic as Money in the Bank. Interesting to say the least. A lot of people were hoping that Toyota would win because on paper they seemed to be the clear favorites in LMP1. They had six entrants this year, which is its lowest in recent memory, where Toyota had three cars in the running. Uh, last year's winners, Porsche, had two cars in the running, and there was one private entry from uh, Bicoles, which... Again, by Coles, they had no chance of winning. Uh, like I said on last week's show, hat, Chris Cook, uh, eat your heart out, by Coles did not win. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the, I thought to say they couldn't have. Yeah, they, they could have had they not, you know, yeah. what we're about to describe in a little bit, yeah? Yeah. If they'd have been something they'd never been before in the entire history of their team, then yeah. they could have won. <laughs> yeah. Statistically, there was a chance. Was it probable? No. <laughs> but I, I think one of the big stories of the week leading up to Le Mans was qualifying. Because, oh my god, Toyota shattered the lap record at the Circuit de la Sarthe. Well, specifically, Kumi Kobayashi destroyed the lap record with a lap time of 3 minutes and 14 seconds. Yes, that was which that was very fast. I mean, yes, it was very fast. That's an eight mile, was it eight point four mile course, eight point two mile course. Yeah, and yes. uh, also um, the the lap average uh, speed was faster than the original Group C uh, cars did, uh, including with the chicanes. Back then, they didn't race; they they raced without the chicanes, and this one was even faster. Like, it was what two hundred fifty two hundred fifty one point eight kilometers per hour average. Yeah, it was, it was about that, but yeah, it was very, very quick. Like, you could tell that that even though the car had low downforce, like, because at Le Mans they run, like, pretty much as little arrow as they can. Yeah, he was, you know, going over 200 miles an hour down the, down the Mulsanne straight with the chicanes, and he was still able to carry so much speed through, you know, the high downforce por- Porsche curves mm-hmm. 
during the you know the later part of the lap it was insane those toyotas were you know by far the outright quickest cars over a single lap but unfortunately a single lap Le Mans does not make <laughs> no not at all no uh there was word coming from the actual uh people that were at the event saying that when the number seven set that lap the track was at its quickest like it was you had a tailwind going down Marzan and you had a headwind through the Porsche curves. So you rocketed down the straights and you could carry all the speed you like through the Porsche curves. And yeah. it showed because you watch the lap and it's it, it's like there's someone said to Camille, drive faster than you think the car would like. <laughs> I can't. Yeah. It's a 314 rather an eight miles. I mean, a 316 is no slouch. Yeah. But a 314. That is insane, and uh, I think, again, like Matt said, it was partially down to the wind because the Circuit de la Sarthe is a very strange track in terms of how it is lengthwise, where, like, other circuits, like, the other extreme is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, where it doesn't matter if you have a tailwind in one direction because you're probably going to lose that with the headwind in the other direction, while at Le Mans it's completely different. If you have a tailwind going down, you know, Circuit de Los, if you're going down the Mulsanne Strait, you have less downforce and you get more speed, which is ideal because it's a flat-out straight. And you also have a headwind coming back up through the curves, which where you need more downforce, where it's preferable to have a headwind. So it was literally the perfect conditions you could ever have in that circuit to, to get the fastest lap ever. That's yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it was the perfect conditions, and Kobayashi had the perfect opportunity, and he made the absolute best of that opportunity. When we say fastest ever around that lap, obviously there's the pre-Shikane configuration, but I was reading something today that said that someone in, I think, 1971 in a Porsche had gone faster when they didn't have the Chicane, of course. They'd done a 3.13.9, I think was the thing. So the absolute all-time record around that sir, that configuration, yes, but I think the overall time yeah, around a, a version of of Le Mans, forget Bugatti, is I think that still stands to that to that car. But that, that that's one lap. Yeah, the, the circuit has had so many alterations during the years. It's not really fair to compare like different eras in terms of lap. But yeah, because yeah. like I know. Anytime they make a major configuration, they like they they have an official process of saying that yes, this is a new version of the circuit. All the lap times, like before this change, like no longer count. So I think yeah, the last time they did that was 2007, and this is officially uh, Circuit de la Sarthe number 14. It's the 14th iteration of the circuit. I say. And that's so, the fastest time. Because I think, what was the qualifying? I think it was the qualifying 2015 was the fastest up to yeah, this point. Yeah, 2015. It was uh, yep. 316 by, uh, was it under Yeah. Uh, no, I, I thought it was a Porsche in 2015. I thought it was oh, yeah, no, the right, weather right, car, yeah, Timo right. Berthard. That's, that's right, yes, Timo Berthard. I mixed up. Mixed up your endurance drivers. Yeah, I mixed, because uh, Lotto is, is in the Porsche now. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> Actually, looking through, 
actually looking through their records, it it's actually the outright qualifying record now because the qualifying record before that was uh, Han Stuck in the in the Porsche uh, 962, which was during qualifying during 1985. He put down the then track record of 314.8. Wow, and we've gone what thousands under that. Yeah, just like a thousandth of a second, he beat the outright qualifying record. And that time was... What year did you say that was? Uh, 1985. 1985, so they weren't had chicanes at that point. Yeah, they weren't chicanes at that point. I, I still think it's miraculous, and I don't think it gets talked about enough, the actual difference of you put two braking zones in a straight that was 200 <laughs> miles an hour. You put two braking zones, two braking zones, and you can go quicker in yeah, yeah. 20, 30 years of race car evolution. Like, it's estimated that, uh, well, at the Nürburgring at least, uh, at the Nürburgring, current day GT3 cars would actually beat Group C cars from the 1980s. Wow. Just because the amount of downforce and the amount of power that they can produce now in in the GT3 cars. Mm. I suppose it's the sophistication as well. It's the fact that you can brake at this level all the time. You can get on the power at this rate and you're fine. You don't have to worry about a random turbo kicking up too early or whatever. Yeah. There's there's a lot more efficiency nowadays than what we saw back then. And it didn't really show during the race because of all the LMP1 cars that ran, while all six of them, only two of them made the finish. Yes, and both of those cars were, at some stage of that race, limping. Yep, yes. so this was not a trouble for race for any other cars in LMP1. Yeah. Yes, so obviously the bicycles was out about what seven to ten minutes in? Yeah, like it, it got a, it hit the wall in the on the first lap, and then it, there was a problem with the with the MGU, I think, or someone something in the engine. After they got back out, yep. and then they, they retired about after like seventy laps, I think. Yeah, this was yeah. as Michael said coming to the race. Give them a little work on the engine. We think it's it's faster now. <laughs> it it should be put. Well, they said it should be bulletproof, but they said we've done a lot of work on the engine and making it better and making it trying to make us competitive. Against the do improved P2s, we'll get to that later, at Le Mans. We should be fine. And then they go off off track, come to the pits, and it's over. Before before the GTE cars have even completed three laps, it's over. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yes. They, yes. They did say bulletproof, oh not shatterproof. <laughs> True. But yeah, like, just to give a, a rundown partially hour by hour of what the LMP ones went through. The Bicoles went out again, pretty much at the start of the race. <laughs> then for the fourth hour, we see the number two Porsche have to pretty much drop out of, you know, overall win contention after, you know, an MGU failure, their motor generator unit failed. So they had the pit, they ended up falling 18 laps behind, which put them, I think second to last out of, uh, was it all the cars or all the prototypes? It was, was second to last out of every car still yeah. running at that point. They were in 56th place out of 57 cars that were still running. Yeah, so the number two, 56th place. No one thought the number two car. 
people thought the number two car should have retired. So that's our four. Then we don't get another issue until our eight, where the number eight Toyota of Buemi, Nakajima, and Davidson dropped out of contention with their own MGU issue when they were running second. Yes, and this was... Uh, this was... No, wait, this was before the safety car, right? Yeah, this yeah, was so before, before the safety, safety car. This, this caused a safety car, actually. Yes. Uh, no, no, I don't think it did, because it made it back to the pits. It made it back to the pits, it came to the pits, he pulled into the box, and then basically the front end of the car became smoke. Oh, no, right. Uh, right. I, I'm completely mixing up my, th my things here. Like, I, I watched this uh, until the night, and then I think my brain scrambled while, <laughs> while, yeah. while watching it's, that. So I'm sorry, it, I apologize for mistakes. It's, it's hard enough for someone, uh, in my case, who's living just next to France, but to me in the UK, uh, to have his time zones work out so he can so I can follow what's going on in the race for someone in a, a different continent I can understand yeah. and it's a 24 hour race anyway even if you're there it's going to be difficult to remember what happened mm -hmm. um, yeah. but yeah the 8 car had its and I think both these MGU problems were the front axle yes uh, the yes, Porsche was also front, front axle. axle and there's marvellous footage of the mechanics in the number 8 garage taking the windscreen off mm -hmm. the car because they needed to take that off to get to something in order to fix the problem. Yes, yeah. and yes, for those not familiar with uh, the World Endurance Championship, front wheel drive, like true front, tr uh, true four wheel drive is banned. But you're allowed four wheel drive if the front two wheels are powered by an electric motor. So that's you know the way to get around that to get four wheel drive. Yeah. And they obviously they can deploy from the front axle. They can also harvest from the front axle. Uh, I don't know if all teams always did that, but they certainly I think they do now. Um, and they don't always power. It's not four wheel drive. It's not expending that electricity once it's really done the traction. Once it's done the traction part of uh, a sequence, it'll it, it'll just be two wheel drive as far as I'm aware because there's no benefit to being four wheel drive at 200 miles an hour. Because you've got no problems with wheel spin at that speed. Yeah, you, you don't have any issues with wheel spin. Pretty much, like, that is how the LMP1s get such tremendous acceleration out of any braking zone. Yeah, because 950 horsepower is not enough. Yeah, you, you need all four wheels. Yeah. But, yeah, the... the the woes for Toyota continued on after that because from the 8th hour into the 10th hour... In the 10th hour, we saw both, well, the two remaining Toyotas break down. First, it was the number seven of Mike Conway, Kumi Kobayashi, and Stefan Sarazin go, go down with, you know, an, an MGU problem. Yeah, it was, uh, was also, like, smack dab in the middle of the track, so they were trying to limp back, <laughs> trying to limp back into the, into the, to the pits desperately, just trying to make the car just at least run until he gets back into the forge chicanes, but no, it stopped, like, uh, I think right after Arnage, I think? Yes. Yeah, right, right after, after Arnage, Arnage, and then... They, the car just, yeah. could go no further. Yeah, yeah. We just, With uh, a yeah. clutch problem, I know, now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, clutch problem for the number seven. The MGU problem would befall the number nine Toyota, uh, well, seemingly right afterwards. Well, in actuality, it was more like 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. Lopez, Lapierre, and... and and Kunimoto in the number nine, their MGU broke down, and they were out of running. 
Yeah, ironically enough, this happened right after the the number eight came back out on the track. So it's yes. like, put, put, uh, add one, take one. It's they're basically back at the their starting point. So seemingly through all these issues befalling the five LMP ones, we had the number one of Yanni, Tandy, and Lotterer. The number one Porsche was seemingly on their way to one of the most dominant 24-hour wins in history with zero competition at all, but with three hours to go in the 21st hour. Uh, they were first forced to retire after a loss of oil pressure. Yep. Out of dead dinosaurs in your engine. <laughs> yeah. That's why you can't. That's why you can't keep running because some poor things from hundreds, ten, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, hundred, one of those just change the order of magnitude depending on which is right. Fix it in it. Um, yeah. You've run out of those, so you can't win the the eighty fifth edition of the twenty four hours of the month. So you can have one out. How many of these Triple Crown events have started pointing out which edition they are since Alonso went to the five hundred uh, to do the five hundred? I, I think it's it started out this year because yeah. last year was the hundredth running of the Indianapolis five hundred. So all the other races are like, we should point out how old our races are. <laughs> hmm. Okay, that makes a lot more sense than it's just oh wait, Alonso's gone and done that. We should probably make a big deal of it. Here. Um, fair enough. Yeah, uh, back on track with the the long car. Yeah, but yeah, they, they, they ran out of the, the liquefied dinosaur corpses to, to, you know, make sure the metal-on-metal metal contact was smooth enough between mm -hmm. their, you know, metal box that produced, you know, the explosions that made the car go forward. Yeah, that was gone. So they were out of the oil. They could not... They tried to limp it back to the pit lane to, to get the problem fixed, but they couldn't make it back because they were a long ways from pit lane. Yes, they were way longer. Yeah. I, it I broke down on the most during the... Well, I saw it, I noticed it, or maybe the camera noticed it, just coming out of the Forest S's, but the replay cameras from on board showed that the first problem started to show up at the first corner. Oh. A, pa a pattern for a lot of the other people on cars. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't help but, but feel. Um, and yeah, coasted through the Forest S's and then had to basically find its way back to the pits, the remaining six and a half miles uh, on electric power at 60 kilometers an hour. It didn't but, do that. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't nope. do that. Like, the Porsche was complete caught completely off guard by this issue because I think the drivers noted that they were, you know, they were not really giving it their all. They were, you know, driving conservatively to aim to make the finish because they had pretty much no challengers. Yeah, they had a. I forget how many laps lead it was, like an eleven uh, or a twelve, 12 yeah, lap 12 lead. Laps, yeah, they had a twelve lap, lap lead. lead over the nearest car, which was a P2, which even at their reduced pace, they were lapping quicker than, if I recall. Um, so, it was just a case, it's a no-brainer. You've got that much of a lead, you can back off and still go quicker than your nearest competitor. Why, why wouldn't you? So I guess that's the point yeah. where they stopped looking at the debt order. Maybe they didn't stop looking at it, but... They just didn't... They just didn't think something on the car would fail, because they weren't straining it as much as they normally do. Yeah. It's like we pushed it flat out for the first 10, 11 hours and nothing went wrong. Why at 98, 97% would something now go wrong? And <laughs> the answer to that question was because it's not Lotterer's year again. <laughs> because <It's> not... <laughs> life is not fair. 
<laughs> yeah, Toyota have learnt that. Uh, who else learnt that at Le Mans recently? Corvette this uh, year? We'll get to that. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to Toyota. I will get to, well, we'll get to Corvette. Oh my yeah, god. Corvette. But yeah, <laughs> that left seemingly the least like probable car left running with the like in contention for the race win the car that we talked about earlier the number two of uh bernard hartley and bamber that was you know 18 laps behind they were you know almost near the bottom of class of the entire race classification slowly but surely while the one was in their dominant lead, the number two was slowly picking off car by car, making up time, slowly but surely getting through the P2s, one P2 at a time. And seemingly enough, they were racing for the overall lead. All they had to do was overtake the P2s, and they had the victory. Yeah. So you've got a situation now, in somewhere in the middle of France, if I recall, where some people and some fans of Le Mans are racing an off-the-shelf prototype car. Several off-the-shelf prototype cars. And then are racing for the gra the greatest prize that they could possibly aim for with a car that's, well, how much more expensive? How much more? Uh, do I even say how much more expensive? <laughs> like, let's just say the these factory efforts are on the scale of Mercedes Formula One program, where... These are two of the largest automakers in the world putting their full and probably undivided motorsports attention onto these pro onto these programs to just win this one race. Yeah, and as it happens, there's a big championship alongside it now to have something else to do in the rest of the year. Yeah, uh, just, while just really trying busy. to think about when, yeah, while trying to win Le Mans the next year, really, um, it's something to to keep them occupied. Um, and so, yeah, a situation, I guess, it, uh, I think we described as, like, tortoise and hare. Yes. <laughs> Except the P2 cars aren't slow, but you know what I mean. It's, uh, you've got the, the car that shouldn't be leading, but is, and you've got your super fast car that was lapping at points 12 seconds a lap faster than it, but it's a long way behind. Can it catch it in time? Yeah, pretty much, because... The, the factory-built cars are mo are much more prone to mechanical issues than the P2 cars. Number one, P1 cars, they're, you know, they have to be hybrids. They have to be hybrids. Those systems could fail, as we talked about, you know, earlier in the episode. And the P2 cars, they're pretty much spec. There are only four approved manufacturers who could build P2 cars. There were over 25 P2 cars in the field this year. So they're the closest thing we have to mass-produce race cars. Yeah. You had four different chassis companies. Yeah, when we say manufacturers building, we literally mean a chassis yeah. manufacturer yeah, make the chassis. building something within the regulations. And then it's like, okay, with this big, it can fit this engine, this engine, this engine in it. And everyone puts Nissan in it or whatever, um, and goes racing. Yeah, and it's pretty much um, the manufacturers need their the manufacturers number one in P two, uh, the engine manufacturers. They pretty much they're using tried and true technology. They don't need to you know innovate with P two, like they don't need to strap hybrid power units onto it. They don't need to do anything else to it. They just need to make sure that it's 
powerful enough to run with the other P2s, and that it will last 24 hours. And that's, like, pretty much the biggest selling point for these teams that are buying these off the shelf. So, pretty much these teams buy these packages, and they know that it'll, it, it's designed to last 24 hours. <laughs> but then again, there being 25 P2 cars out there caused... A few incidents over the course of this 24-hour race. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, there's uh, an Italian somewhere who's uh, <laughs> not very happy with a... Uh, was it an orange P2 car? I can't think. I don't remember, I don't remember which P2 the, the, car it was. Um, the, first, the first one with, with, with LP2s and GT cars was, it was uh, an orange car crashing onto the black Porsche. That's right. Yes, at the Porsche curves. Yeah. Just, just scooped it, scooped it at the back. Just scooped it. Yeah, ironically enough, on the Porsche curves as well. <laughs> oh yeah, spinning, spinning Porsche on the Porsche curves. Probably not the first person to do that. Yeah. Um, and then, was there another one before the Ferrari? Ooh, I, I don't remember, but that's probably the most. The the one on the Molson with the the sixty two American scooter. A Scuderia Corsa Ferrari. That was probably the most notable one. Wait, no. Was it the 62? No, no it's, the a, it's, a, it's a Risi Competizione. It's an Italian. It's from the, the Italian guys from Mimsa. Yeah, oh, it, it's the yes. 82 in yeah. the race, I believe. Yeah, it's the Fisichella car. Yeah. <laughs> yes, the, the Giancarlo Fisichella car. He wasn't behind the wheel at the time, no. but his race was pretty much over after that incident. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, that was not a bright move. If you've seen the video, it's effectively uh, the P2 cars trying to get around the GT cars, uh, doesn't see the, the Ferrari beside him, moves over on the Ferrari and effectively punts it off, going flat out down the Mulsanne straight. Just straight into the Armco barrier on the side there. Yep, and man oh man... I, I've not seen an incident like, like, I've not seen an incident where the prototype car just completely punts off the GT car. I've seen like GT cars take out LMP1 cars before, but yeah. not anything like that. <laughs> because it's, I'm trying to. Were, were, they, were they flat out or was it in the braking zone for the first chicane? It was it was, right, right, just before yeah, the braking zone. Yeah. Yeah, it was just before the braking zone into the, the Molson corner. Okay, so we're going to try and take its ideal racing line. Didn't see a car that it must have literally overtaken two seconds ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not even overtaken fully, but it must have been <laughs> it must have been able to see it by just looking forward like two seconds ago. Didn't see it. <laughs> yes. Drifted left and sent Marshall's ducking for cover. And ro I don't know if it rode off the car. But it certainly caused a lot of damage. Yeah, to the it, was, front. it was. I think pretty, the first, yeah, I think it, the Ferrari was written off actually. Yeah, the car was written off. It it could it could not even move afterwards. No, it was a quite a big shunt. That that car was out of contention from the moment I saw the crash. Yeah, and that was probably one of the. It's usually one of the favorites to win the race. The 82 Rizzi Competizione Ferrari with, you know, Tony Villander, Giancarlo Fisichello, and, P and Pierre Kaffer. They're, like, the Ferrari to beat when it comes to these endurance races. Yeah. Uh, and but to be fair, 
I think generally they play it down a bit because they tend to get balanced up certainly but in the previous couple of years apparently they've been balanced performance too much in a sense like they've been pegged back a bit too much um well that could have been different ferraris i don't know but if they like i think they balance the performance against the ferrari like they measure everyone else's yeah. performance against the ferrari and it they feel like they keep losing out more than that but it's certainly when was the last ferrari to win the pro category was it the AF Corsa? But I don't... What, last year? Yeah, I don't remember if it was last year or not, but it's usually the the Italian AF Corsa team and the American Rizzi Competizione team are the the not-factory Ferrari factory team. Yeah. Let's make, let's make that again, very like, Yeah, they, they race in the pro category, but... They're one of the few teams not to be a manufacturer team because uh, Porsche, Corvette, uh, Ford, and Aston Martin—they are all factory teams. I'm pretty sure they're the only teams in the pro category not to be a factory team. Um, Even though, like, in terms of the support they get from Ferrari and the funding that they have, on like, in reality, they're pretty much a factory team. It's it's a bit more than just for for a while a team that I support and another championship were running as manufacturer blessed, in the sense that it's like you have the you have our support, yeah, but they weren't. I think they were just supplying some parts and yeah. for free and whatever, and you could say you could say our company name and we won't. But sure. I, I think it's it's more of an issue of Ferrari does not want to compete at the 24 hours unless it's for the overall win. So they don't want to give anyone any kind of blessing. Any kind of official Ferrari in the name yeah. level uh, support. Which is... It, it's an odd way of going about it in a sense because if you're going to spend the money anyway and spend the resources why would you want to hide that but i guess the, people could see it to ferrari so when it wins yeah, they know it's, it's complicated but they think it's worthwhile because they keep doing it so fair enough <laughs> but then again back to the p2s and the p2 category probably saw the the underdog of underdogs if you say so a team Attempting their first 24 hours actually won. Yes, and uh, uh, it was uh, also a different thing here. Also, uh, the the rebellion team who was racing LMP1 last year uh, dropped down back to LMP2 and also almost won the race on their first uh, on their first uh, Le Mans back in the I don't think it was back in the category. I don't think it were ever in LMP2 before this, but uh, uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't recall any mention of them coming back to P2. Yeah. They just dropped yeah, They dropped back yeah, I mean, down to... Yeah. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I mean, kind of. They dropped to, um, to P2 to stop themselves racing in a class of one. Because <laughs> yeah, to people, actually, because to actually al win. Although by, although by calls were there, were they really... Were they ever featured in the Rebellion strategy plan? I don't think they were. Um, no, I don't think so. No. So yeah, they decided to try and go for the overall win. And as you were saying, yeah, go ahead. And it's like, technically, they were there last year, but under a different guise. They were the G-Drive team last year. 
Oh, really? Was it the same yeah. people? Uh, no, different driver lineup. Ah, okay. Yeah, they uh, last year they had a car that ran uh, Roman Rusinoff, Will Stevens, and Renee Rast, and uh, I think they had Jake Dennis and Guido Vandergaard and Simon Dolan in the other car. This year was a completely different driver lineup because they had obviously new backing from one f- movie star, Jackie Chan. Yeah. Jackie Chan, <laughs> yes. Jackie Chan on a racing car, gentlemen. That's a, uh, that's a thing. Yes, yes. The world is full of surprises. And yeah, each each of their cars this year featured um, a Chinese driver, a French driver, and a British driver. Even though it's it's complicated because the ACO has different nationalities listed in their official results for the Chinese drivers because. Uh, Hope and Tung is Chinese, but he's also Dutch, and David Cheng is also is Chinese and also American. Oh, yeah. So, because uh, I looked on the Wikipedia to so that I had a, a sheet of what the results was to refer back to for the show, and I saw Hope and Tung, and I saw the Dutch flag, and I thought someone's having a laugh. No, no, <laughs> Hope and Tung is is Dutch. Yeah, but he, he races with a Chinese license, though, so I, I find it kind of weird that it didn't, it didn't put a Chinese nationality there. I see. Because yeah, so, it, was, it was Chinese on the car. Yeah, it was yeah, Chinese it on the be... car. Mm-hmm. Like, Wikipedia, get your facts straight. Yeah. Wikipedia, yes. Wikipedia go off what they're told. Yes. LMP2, we ended up second overall and first in class, the number 38 Jackie Chan DC Racing Orica, driven by Ho Ping Tung, Thomas Laurent, and Oliver Jarvis. And there was actually a moment in time it seemed like this car could have had the overall victory. Yeah, like, because it was... Because it only lost by a lap to the number two Porsche. Yeah, so only all, a lap all it would have taken was, was uh, an inopportune safety car that reduced the amount of time the two car had to catch up and also brought it, like extended the gap back out with the three safety car crocodiles. That's probably all it would have taken for us to be talking about the number 38 car and what an upset that is. Instead, yes, we're talking sorry. about the, the, number, the number two car and what a surprise <laughs> that is. Um, and yes, originally the third overall car... And second in class in the P2s was the, the, the Valiant Rebellion, driven by Nelson Piquet Jr., uh, Matthias Beck, and uh, David Hansen. That car ended up getting disqualified for running a piece of non-homologated bodywork. Because I think uh, when their car stalled, they, during the, the process to, to you know, restart the car, they changed some bodywork in the car that bodywork was not homologated, you're allowed to run non-homologated bodywork if your car is damaged. It was not damaged. It was seen as stalled. So they ended up getting disqualified via video evidence. Yeah. So, uh. yeah, they didn't... Like, if a marshal had seen it in person, they would have been warned and they would have been... They probably would have been allowed to come back into pit lane and change it. But because it was after the race was over, they had to be disqualified. Yeah. Yeah, it's they, like they literally CSI cut. Lamont here. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, uh, so, they... yeah, so that's probably one of the, like, craziest disqualifications I've seen. Like, I've seen, uh, I still remember, I forget which golfer, I think it was Tiger Woods ended up getting a penalty during a tournament, a golf tournament a couple years ago via video, well, not video evidence, it was a golf referee an off-duty golf referee watching it from home. Wow. <laughs> oh my god, that's even better. Uh, Just imagine like uh, a marshal who volunteered to go for the race, but like he got sick. But and instead of, <laughs> so he had to stay home watching, and then he catches them doing that. That's the uh, equivalent. Oh my god. <laughs> yes, that is the equivalent. Thankfully, it was a marshal like. I, I don't know who sent in the video footage. I'm pretty sure it, it I'm pretty sure it had to be a marshal, unless it was like the official video footage I, for the race. I believe a based on watching the actual footage of it at the time, they cut the the camera cut to it in a pit stop, so it was in the box. Then it yep. cut away to watch something else, probably a battle in GT Pro or another car in the pits. And then it came back, and there was this circular hole in the top of the body where they were hitting a broom handle through with a hammer to do the starting method, which is what they were doing anyway. It's just this time they decided to shortcut the process by cutting a circular, very neat circular hole just where they needed them <laughs> to be so they could poke the thing through at the right angle. Um, so I'm guessing it was that camera. Yeah, it was probably that camera. And, so, yeah. and that relayed the footage, which was recorded, and then they brought it up and said, hang on a minute, that's that's not on. I mean, it was, it was yeah. on the top of the car, so it's not really an aerodynamic uh thing uh yeah. something it might compromise it dynamically yeah on, yeah on the on that cus on that customer chassis uh that hole that hole <laughs> is not homologated and there was no bodywork damage to that piece of bodywork so they got disqualified the rules yeah so it created the opportune moment for one car to move up to second in class and third overall the other Jackie Chan DC racing car driven by David Chang, uh, Christian Christian Gimendi, and Alex Brundle. Yeah, and props to Alex Brundle because he's um, uh, not. I shoot. I believe he was born and brought up much like Martin Brundle in Norfolk, which is where uh, I'm from. So big up to Alex Brundle <laughs> for making it onto the overall Le Mans podium, yeah. uh, like t- twenty eight hours after the race finished but still yeah yeah still brundles are from yeah still counts still counts you get you get an overall podium but yeah yeah the brundles from king's lynn in england in norfolk yeah boy Oh wait, something something I need to get in before uh, you change the subject again. Um, I, I I missed this. I missed this saying this while we were talking about the rebellion, but they kind of found a literal loophole. <laughs> literal. Oh. <laughs> I just had to get that in. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, episode title. Episode title. Yes, literal loophole. <laughs> but yes. Uh, but again, those are the other two cars on podium. Our winners again, Timo Bernhard, Brendan Hartley, and Earl Bamber in the number two Porsche after... No no one saw them winning this thing. <laughs> no one. Yeah, like the commentary team said after the car was in the garage and had lost so much time, and was sent back out, they said, 
why have they done that? They may as well just retire because they're so far back they haven't got a chance anymore. Well, famous last words. <laughs> yeah, as you can, as you can tell, that um, that was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like it's like the the cliche goes: you don't pit, you you don't get to win Le Mans. Le Mans gets you to win it. Yeah, it it picks who wins. Yeah, it picks you to Same win. Same with the brickyard. Uh-huh. Um. But yeah, heading down, we already covered LMP two. Uh, just to briefly mention, Alec, uh, GTM was won by the, the JMW Ferrari, driven by Robert Smith, Will Stevens, and Drives Vanthor. But I think the more exciting GT class fight was in GT Pro, where we, for most of the race, the top three cars were within seconds of each other. Yep, top three cars were within seconds, and I think like the top ten for the vast majority of that race, we're on the same lap. Yes. Yeah. They were all, they were switching leads basically for every pit stop. Yeah, and you don't even get that in some block pub sprint races, <laughs> and you get and you get the, the twenty four hours of Le Mans. I mean, that's that's quality. That's quality of field. Yeah, and I think on the GT podium, we like despite how like people say that a certain car in the field has been, you know, given you know, benefit over the others in balance of performance. It was very close between all the cars, and we had three different cars, well, three different manufacturers on the GTE podium. Hmm. And in a different yeah, we, order to what we yeah, expected yeah. with five minutes <laughs> to go. In a different order. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because uh, the, the pass for the win in the GT Pro category happened on the penultimate lap, and not not even the like during the middle of the second to last lap the last corner of the second to last lap yeah and that was caused by an unfortunate going off by corvette factory driver jordan taylor and i where are all these american fans just crying over jordan taylor just Throwing away the 24 hours of Le Mans win. Yeah, it's a it's a shame that he had to do it because he's won every other major race he's competed in this year, um, and he couldn't quite make this one work. But it's also I think the first mistake he's made of the entire year yeah. in yeah, anything at all. Uh, and it just so happened that it was at the most high-profile moment of uh, possibly his career so far. Um, yeah. He was literally assigned to be the closer for the over over the class win contending Corvette. Like that is, that is the high pressure scenario of high pressure scenarios. For sure. Like and yeah, he he goes off. His car is clearly damaged. It seemed like he lost downforce, so he's clearly trying to hold off the Aston Martin behind him, and. He is clearly taking the corners slower than the Aston Martin, moving over to make sure to make it a bit more difficult for the Aston Martin to pass until the second of the four chicanes, his car runs wide, and it is bye-bye Aston Martin. I mean, it's like, yeah, bye-bye Aston Martin. The Aston Martin goes off to take the race lead. It looks like, oh, maybe he could, you know, hold it together, get second, but no, he puts it in the wall and has to drag it home to third place in class. 
Nah. Yep. The off at the second chicane generated, probably generated, it's unlikely he had it beforehand, uh, puncture and or bodywork damage, which only really became evident as he rounded that final corner on the penultimate lap when he just drifted so wide you could see something was clearly wrong. Uh, and managed to... Who beat him in the end? I can't remember. Yeah, and it's like... During that approach to the Dunlap Bridge, he completely misses the corner, and that's when you know, yep, he has a puncture. It is gone. <laughs> uh, you know, funnily enough, the 64 car uh, earlier in the race had done a similar thing, as it um, just in, on the entry of the Porsche, uh, the Porsche cars, that uh, Tommy Miller lost the car, and he hit the, the rear on the wall, and he, lost, and he lost the wing and got a puncture as well. And then later on, as he was yeah. getting on yeah. the pits, uh, he spins the car and gets beached on the gravel. So both both cars suffer basically the same problem a few hours apart from each other. But yep, uh, through that last like last moment pass, the 97 Aston Martin, driven by Darren Turner, Jonathan Adam, and Brazilian Daniel Serra, wins their class in GT Pro, followed by... <laughs> followed by the 67 Ford GT, driven by Harry Tignell and Imprio and uh, Pippo Pooptorani. Pippo! <laughs> Andy Prio, the, the man who for the longest time was a BMW guy yeah. in everything. Like, even so far as at one point he actually had a test for BMW Williams. That's how much he was part of the BMW program. Wow. Like, I know during the, the American Le Mans era, he raced for uh, Ray Hall, Letterman, and Lanigan when they ran the, the factory, when they ran the factory BMWs here in the States. Hmm. Like, seeing Prio in a Ford is still, to me, a very weird experience. Because he's, when you spend so long around BMW, it, it, all, all the time, more or less, in a factory position, you, like, triple world touring, for example, you then jump ship to Ford, it's it just it's odd seeing Andy Prio, Ford Chip Ganassi Racing. Ford Chip Ganassi Racing UK? Ooh, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yes. yeah, UK. And he's second at the on twenty four hours. I don't think he was on the podium last year, was he? Or that car No, was. I don't think he was on the podium last year. But I mean looking at Chip Ganassi's squad for the Ford factory teams, it is like the all star team of sports car teams that like when you hear that they didn't win this race, it was a surprise to everyone. Because mm. it wasn't the drivers. Yeah, yeah it wasn't the drivers. Because, uh, like, despite Tony Kanaan being his last, like, last-minute replacement for his, the injured Sebastian Bourdais, he was, you know, Tony Kanaan out there. He's spectacular out there in a GT car. And him being in a car with Joey Hand and Dirk Mueller, like, they're a great team, but they just couldn't get the job done. The other Team USA car driven by, like, no Americans on the team, Ryan Briscoe, Scott Dixon, and Richard Westbrook, like, again, they were great out there, but they just they just didn't have the speed. They just didn't have, like, their cars didn't have the speed. Hmm. Which, which, which form was it that had one of the best uh, questions or demands for race control? It was one that spun at Indianapolis Corner in the gravel, got rescued, <laughs> and then littered gravel all over the track and prompted the race director to come on the radio would say, could the team could the team manager of the number I think it was the sixty nine Ford, please tell his driver not to litter gravel all over my race <laughs> uh, and oh my 
Yeah, he'd already done that. So they could, I think that might have been what the first safety car was for. Yeah, there was a uh, safety car was, yeah. To clean up all the gravel. Um, but that, 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 I enjoyed I enjoyed that, the uh, the sassy race director. <laughs> but yep, and uh, to people who've been like following sports car racing to, from the start of the year, uh, the Porsche 911 RSR, like the the mid-engined class killer, as some people called it earlier in the year, finished fourth, which, again, shows just how competitive this class is to begin with when you can have a car that seemingly breaks all the rules and it will, like, dominate the class, finish fourth in the class at Le Mans. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, it was leading at points. I think it was in contention for the win for a decent bit of the race. Uh, certainly in the final few hours, it was being talked about as, what, what could this car do? I think it was a bit off strategy, which is how it ended up where it was. Yeah, and then... Uh, yeah, pretty much, like, they they didn't have the speed, they didn't really have, you know... They didn't have the fastest car, but they didn't have the slowest car. They didn't have the worst strategy, they didn't have the best strategy. They had... They were... Above average, but they weren't good enough to win the race. Which is a shame, because what you need to win the race, to win the GG Pro class, is luck, pace, reliability. And basically every car had two of those. Yeah, every but, car had two of those. <laughs> but only really the, the Corvette and the 97 Aston, the, the 63 Corvette and the 97 Aston had... I think all three of them for the entire yeah. race. Great sound, by the way, the the Porsche that they ran this year. The is it the 911 RSR mm-hmm. with its flat six yeah. engine. That's great. Yeah, the, the, that. yeah, the flat six. For some reason, it sounds better mid-engine than it being all the way in the back. Right, which it's it's the same engine. Why is that? But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But then again, last, uh, well, last car being of a different manufacturer, we ended up having uh, the top five being five different manufacturers, which, again, amazing. Uh, fifth place was the 71 AF Corsa of uh, Davide Rigon, Sam Bird, and Manuel Molina, which, I mean, Miguel Molina, which, yeah, I mean, AF Corsa, they tried their best. <laughs> Yeah. The rest wasn't enough. Yeah, they still had a trouble most of the time, but that's not all you need. Mm. Yes. It's kind of easy to stay out of trouble if you're a little bit off the pace, I suppose. Oh, no. My <laughs> oh, <laughs> drop. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was... Um, sorry, of course. That was... Yeah, I'm sure. That was, there's, um, a reason, I'm sure yeah, there's, there's a reason yeah. you're not the... Just, just yeah. go, go a little faster next year, yeah, try a little faster. Yeah. Ma- make sure Ferrari regrets not making you a true factory team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they'll never admit it. You'll never find out. But make sure that you think that they know. That, yes. Uh... yes. Uh, but Le Mans as a whole, like, despite despite all the retirements in LMP2, uh, we had 49 out of 60 cars finishing. Which, considering Which, the uh, amount of cars that started, is the most, is the most ever all ever finishes, um, uh, in, in all of the history. 
Yes, yeah. it is the best finished Le Mans ever. <laughs> mm. from a, certainly from a percentage point of view. Yes, from a percentage point of view. To be, to be classified as... Uh, to be classified, period, you have to finish 70% of the race, which this year was 257 laps. And, man... Um, yeah, everyone, everyone who finished past that mark with flying colors. We did not get many people to uh, damage their car and decide to park it and come out for the end. Pretty mm. much everyone who finished ran the entire way. Which is, I mean, if you ignore the fact that the winner overall was in the garage for about an hour <laughs> being prepared, that fact <laughs> holds up pretty what? well. Yeah, besides... The, the LMP1s that did finish, those were the cars that were in for a significant amount of time, but they finished so high up in the classification that it, you pretty much could just ignore that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but overall, uh, interesting Le Mans. How do you guys feel about Le Mans this year? Uh, it's, uh, well, in terms of finish, dramatic finishes, it obviously wasn't a, uh, like last year, but except for the gt class maybe but um yeah i think this was overall a better one because we had the we had the the things happening all over we had um the cars were being competitive on on most of the time especially on gte and uh yes of course the upsets were like they're probably the head the the headline of of this year's lebon as well so yeah i would rate this quite highly in my opinion yeah i'd go with most of that it was a race of just a race of surprises generally because who thought that who thought that every toyota would have problems at some point because with toyota's history at the event it wasn't out of the question that some of they might have had some problems but that all three of them had pretty major problems at some point two of them not even finishing that was unexpected the, yes. the the Porsche coasting home, the run to the flag with a twelve lap lead, stops with three hours to go. It was a entirely unsurprising race because last year we had all the drama at the end. Yes. And there were, yeah, there were bits in there, but it was all the drama really in the final five ten minutes. With this race, it was continual, continual good, 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 good drama and drama and just spikes of drama throughout the entire race. Um, so I, I'd rate this Le Mans as better than last year's Le Mans. It would still be nice to have a P1 class where there was a battle to yeah. the flag, yeah, it's definitely... but that's so unlikely to happen, especially now we're down on the number of cars, that it's not really worth hoping for that too much. But I enjoy it. I'd enjoy it. I enjoyed it. I like the faster P2 cars. Um, the fact there was an actual possibility of albeit a damaged P1 car not potentially being able to... It wasn't guaranteed that it would just run rings around the P2 cars in the end of the yeah, race. There was, a, there was a struggle. There was a struggle. Yeah, there was a definite kind of... If there's a safety car, if there was too many slow zones, we might not be able to do this, lads. So it wasn't... Yeah, it was It was a tense race. I liked it a lot. Yeah, I liked it. It, it, it. Like, again, there was something to watch throughout the race. It wasn't just the last hour. Like, you had a reason to watch, to at least tune in for at least once an hour. Hmm. Like, check in for the hourly update, because something will have happened. Yes. <laughs> um, 
you probably won't even expect it, even if it's just another 17 lead changes in GT Pro. Uh, so, something exactly will have happened. Yeah, I, I, but again, where does Le Mans go from here? Because LMP1 looked thin, and there have been rumors, like, I know Porsche and Toyota have done a lot to try to quell these rumors that they could be pulling out. Like, I know Porsche has pretty much... They've, they've said they'll be back next year, but they said, they said that that wasn't official yet. That there'll be an official confirmation later on in the year, but they said that they'll be back. Hmm. It's like trust us, we'll, we'll be back as soon as we can persuade the board of directors to let us be back. Yes, basically. Uh, is is probably what that was, but I think it comes. Where, in terms of where does the one go from here? The P1H class. If Toyota, if if Toyota leave, if Porsche leave. I think Toyota go as well. Yeah, because yeah, then there's no competition, because... and then all that's left is just the privateers, because, like, Janetta's coming next year, right? Mm -hmm. yeah, there's the then... Janetta mm -hmm. privateer uh, try, attempting to revive the privateer class, which, from what we hear, is, been, is being very successful, and there's a lot of interest from companies who are saying, yeah, all right, I'll have a go at that. And this year's race will have only stimulated that. Definitely. Because even if there's the same number of P1 cars... Next year, knowing seeing how many problems could be had, if you've got a fast, competitive, reliable, simple, privateer P1 package, there is a distinct chance you can win Le Mans now. Yes. As, again, as shown by this year's race. If the Baikal's car was still running, they had the pace, in theory, to win the race. So yes. if, if the, the privateer cars next year can be, can be closer to 10 seconds, they could do that. So there's a lot of interest around those. I think that could honestly be the future of the P1 class. Yeah, the the P1 class is pretty much... They've pretty much admitted they need to cut costs and they need to make sure that they have a mix of privateers and manufacturers. Almost as if they're trying to aim to be Formula 1 in miniature. Yeah, yeah it's, it's Formula, Formula one. 1 that races for 6 hours instead of only 2. Or 24. Even though, we'll, we'll get to that for the calendar section, where we talk about the next year's provisional calendars. There actually might be other distances than six hours next year in the WEC calendar. Oh, really? Ooh. That's interesting. I didn't know about that. Yeah, for the most part, uh, for the, like, for the most part, when it comes to LMP1, they're aiming to cut costs where they can, make it easier for for privateers to buy cars and for privateer manufacturers to build cars for, you know, the customers that are affordable to make. They don't they know it's too expensive. And that's pretty much the big thing going forward. How do we make this class less, less expensive to compete in because the manufacturers want to be here and they will spend whatever it takes to win. But if they're the only guys out there, is their win actually, you know, worth anything? Yeah, because the, the cost-cutting factor is not a hard thing. It will be very easy to make LMP1 much cheaper. But to make it much cheaper and keep manufacturer interest, yes. that's the struggle. Like, <laughs> because manufacturer interest is pretty much pegged on, well... Manufacturer interest is pegged on it being, you know, road relevant 
in terms of we want to also use this as a platform to develop electric and hybrid car technology. Well, everyone believes that except for Toyota at the moment, but that's a different story. <laughs> it's it's an issue of we gotta make the most expensive part of the car besides the hybrids, you know, cheaper to design, and that's the bodywork, and they're doing that by introducing a fixed body kit. You can only have one body kit for the year. I think they allow you to make some like minute changes over the year. And they're also banning in-season development. So for the most part, they're cutting down costs where they can. And that's going to be Arrow. Hmm. The, the only worry about that is, is that, okay, so they can't spend the money and the resources through the year to improve the car. Okay, do they then shift most of that money that they would save into the winter to make the car they start with the best as possible? Uh, again, they're going to avoid that by introducing another thing from Formula 1, a token system on all car development, not just the power unit. Oh, so, that's quite a, that, that's a clever workaround, actually. Yeah, I think about it. so because of because of the way like the WEC works differently than Le Mans, a token system will probably work out better for them because they change their rules package about every three, four, or five years. So if you're if you end up being trapped behind, you know that you can always work towards the next rules program while also catching up. Because uh, I think this is the Mercedes workaround where back in 2010, Mercedes were working on the next Formula One rule set, and that ended up paying off massive dividends for them. Yeah, they kept the, the curve development in-house and didn't just keep it sitting there and trying to improve the the 6.7 seconds of 80 horsepower, they said, okay, let's scale it up. And they were also the people that spoke to, I think that they and Renault maybe were another company that said, that got the engines shifted from a inline four-cylinder yes. to a V6 because they said, well, we, we're not going to market super fast four-cylinder road cars. Turns out Mercedes have. They now find yes. themselves on selling <laughs> the fastest four-cylinder road car you could get. Um, but, you know, never mind that. That's uh, that's the politics behind F1. In in the WEC, politics are a bit different because it's mainly at attracting people to come in, less than appeasing the people who are already here. Because, let's be honest, if you're here in the WEC, you pretty much don't care too much about the rule set. Yeah. It's like, okay, if you're interested in the rules when you come in, You've then got however many more years of knowing what the what it is. You know the deal. You know the philosophies you need to go down. And you can just plow on through. It's a shame, really, that Audi pulled out before we got to see what their new design could do uh, properly. Um, yeah, that okay. was a, just a note about so Audi. Just a note to how they plan to focus spending, because... That is also another thing. They kind of developed the rules package in a way where if you want to spend a lot of money, you're going to have to do it in very specific ways. And another way, uh, the LMP1 cars, after every pit stop, they have to run the first kilometer out on track on only electrical power. And 
I can't find if there's a set distance for it, but LMP1s will also have to finish the race on only electrical power. I don't know how much, like, time that is. I assume it's going to be either the last declared lap, because every year at Le Mans, they, you know, pretty much announce when they're going to wave the white flag. I see. I, did, they don't actually wave a white flag today. Uh, well, yeah, they they don't wave the white flag, but they usually announce that this lap will be the final lap. I and see. The, the counter comes out to zero. They announce the last lap. They the guys run through the the people. Well, the drivers run through the the finish line. They complete another lap, and that's the end. Yeah. I'm imagining then what it might be is it's like you you do the first corner, you come down into the Dunlop. Is the Dunlop S or the Dunlop Chicane? I'm not sure. I think it's the Dunlop Chicane. And it's like, for, at that point, they've declared it's the last lap coming out of there into the Forest S's. That's where you switch to electrical yeah, power. Yeah, pretty much. Because, like, unless, unless the race is extremely close, the last lap is rarely ever too competitive at Le Mans. Yeah. And if, if all the P1 guys have to... If everyone has to complete the last lap on electrical power, it's going to be how good your electrical power on the last lap if it's yes. a close race. And let's hope Toyota aren't leading when that comes because that'll be the most nerve-wracking they'll ever, they'll ever be. And again, we also talked about early in the like uh, early in the episode we talked about uh, Kobayashi's you know tremendous pole lap and pretty much the the rule of thumb when it comes to the, the 24 hours of Le Mans, the ACO tries to keep, um, tries to keep the average race lap for the, for the P1s, uh, over three minutes and 20 seconds. I think they've moved it closer to three minutes, 18 now, but pretty much they have a rule of thumb of when the cars get too fast and they've kind of, they, they're resetting the, the safety cell rules. So the cockpits have to be bigger. So, the cockpits have to be bigger, and the the seating position has to be more upright, similar to what you see in in the GT categories, to effectively mm -hmm. make the cars less aerodynamically efficient, to slow the cars down in straight lines. <laughs> <laughs> That's clever. So by not mentioning things, changes to be made to the key aer aerodynamic components or to the engine, they've said. Just for safety reasons, we need this. We need you to increase the size of this bit, which will in turn slow the cars down. That's genius. Yeah, because pretty much it's you. You can't make the Circuit de la Sarthe any safer than it is now. Like maybe they could add some safer barriers in a couple more corners, but besides that, you can't make any dramatic safety changes. So if they need to improve safety, it needs to be on the end of the cars. Yeah. Because the last, what the last fatality in on twenty thirteen, I think, yeah, in the GT the, class, the, the Aston GT, where, where, car, Alan yeah, where, where Alan Simonson goes off at Tetra Rouge, goes into the Armco, and again, if you know anything about Armco, Armco has a lot of give. There was a tree fairly close to the Armco barrier, so the tree, so the Armco gave into a tree. I see. Which means that instead of the Armco absorbing all the energy, it absorbs a bit of the energy and then yeah. it's a tree. And then the tree hit back. Yeah. So again, uh, they fixed that. Like they. Was it. It was either they put Tech Pro or Safety 
are, are safer barriers there, and they also, I believe they either moved all the trees at the outside of Tetraru's back, which, like, is a tremendous landscaping effort, or got, like, I know the trees <laughs> are still there. And so they just decided, right, trees, come back. No, no it's like, like it. they hire an army of, like, a hundred gardeners. <laughs> okay, you guys need to uh, uproot all these trees and move it back about, let's say, two, three meters. Can you guys do that? You got, like, about a year. Go. I mean, yeah, could have put, could have pulled the wall in a little bit more, but it's easier to move the tree, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so besides, yeah, besides cutting down on the arrow, making the cars less arrow efficient, uh, power like power unit rules are pretty much the same. I know they're going to be allowed more hybrid power. Um, they're going to be allowed to charge batteries in pit lane now. That should be interesting. Like, they're really, like, if you want to spend money, it's going to be on the batteries. If you want to spend money, it's got to be on the batteries. Yeah. It's like, pay no attention to Formula E. That's yep. over there. So, again, LMP1, they're hoping to fix things. Um, maybe we won't see another 24 hours with 25 P1, with 25 P2 cars again. Hmm. Well, who? Because what was that? Is that more than normal? Uh, is that more than normal? Let me check last year's entries because I know it's usually around maybe like eighteen. Oh, okay. So that's a sizable increase. Really? So the cars get faster, and more people decide to have a crack at it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like the hmm. the cars got faster, and also um the new P2 regulations came into effect. So the cars became a whole lot cheaper. Oh. Ah, I didn't know they'd done a cross-cutting there as well. Yeah, that's a great balance. Faster and cheaper. Allows the masses yeah. to come in. And almost win the race, as it turns out. Sure. <laughs> so p people will be looking back in a few years' time. They may be one of you people listening. <laughs> Wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah. And yeah, you'll be looking back and you'll be going... Why were the number of laps completed in the 2017 24 hours in a month so low? <laughs> Why was it so low? <laughs> and then you, and then you'll click on the description of the race and remember, oh, that's why. Because every girl that was supposed to win just didn't want to. Okay, yeah, there were 18 in yeah, there were 18 in the 2015 24 hours, and in 2016 there were 22. So it's been slowly going up the less P1 cars there were. I so, see. So yeah, that if, makes if sense. Janetta wasn't coming in last, next year, and then all the hybrid cars pulled out, the Bicolas would have pretty much to would be forced to go down to LMP2 to not be running alone in the class. Yeah, like I've heard some, like... I'm just, yeah, I'm just, I've, I've been hearing some hot takes saying that, yeah, if everyone were to pull out, P2 would just become, you know, the new P1. Yeah, just be LMP, because then there's there's only one LM, there's only one prototype class. Yeah. But again, I... Le Mans... Things, things have to get better. I, I'm, not like, I, I'm not even like, I hope things, things get better. No, things have to get better. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a case it's not really not a case of open thing. It's a case of basically the it's basically survival. Yeah, it's okay. pretty much survival for the prototypes. Yeah. G on the GT th side of things, like everything is perfect. Oh, spot on. Yeah, like 
like it's it, it's it's hard to it's like besides wanting more manufacturers than GT Pro, GT Pro could not be any better, and they are getting more manufacturers, so yeah. <laughs> yep. With the the word on the street being that uh, word on the street, yeah, word on the, the that famous motor racing street, uh, that Lamborghini. Uh, let me. Let's put, so for next year, I believe BMW are confirmed manufacturer entry into GT yes. Pro. Yeah, that's a thing. They're bringing is it an M4? Um, I think it's a. I think it's an M4. Would be the logical one, because like if they brought the, if they brought back the the Z4, it would be it would be too small. Just go, yeah, and we're also like just like we go, going bad because the Z4 is already an old car. The M4 is more recent. It would make more sense to push that. Yeah, no, I believe that they're developing an M. I believe they're developing a new M4 road car, so they're developing a race car in tandem with that. So yeah. BMW are coming in. There are strong rumors about Lamborghini from the VW Audi group uh, waddling their way in. With uh, with what car yet? I don't think is known, but it's they might announce something at some point soon for next year. And McLaren, uh, King knows more about this than I do, but McLaren are supposedly getting ready to announce a GT entry for next yes, year as well. Like McLaren have been inching their way to saying that they're going to return to the GT. Well, it would be their first outing in the GT category period, where. Uh, they've been inching their way forward. They've been, you know, they've been contracting out their GT3 cars to, you know, an outside company. They've pretty much ended relations with that outside company and brought construction for their cars back in-house. And pretty much they're taking more of, it, of an involved effort in their sports car program. So all the signs are there saying that there could be an actual factory McLaren GT team in the near future. Yeah, and there were people from Radio Le Mans saying that uh, they expected an announcement at Le Mans weekend. They expected an announcement in the week leading up to it from McLaren. And that hasn't come. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. It just it kind of makes sense if you're going to announce something soon, it makes sense to do it around yeah. the event because then everyone will be talking about it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that, that's the McLaren rumor, because obviously they've, they've got a market of some success because they're trying to sell road cars, and as much as the McLaren brand is iconic, if you're finishing behind Sauber's <laughs> in uh, F1 and your other GT exploits are hidden behind what, paywalls or whatever, you've got to market some success, so I guess they're going to try and build it in the, the WEC or at least yeah, at Le Mans. Le Mans yeah because you can only keep relying on past success for so long yes <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it worked for Ferrari for a while <clears throat> but um <laughs> it's uh it, it, I think it's going to work quite the same with McLaren although they, apparently the cars are selling very well still which is bizarre yeah and it's it's looking very strong for the GT category overall and Man, it's by far the most entertaining category in the field on its on its own merit. Yeah, if if all those rumors are confirmed and all those all those manufacturers actually get in next year, it's gonna be a delight to watch. Yes, an absolute yeah. delight. Because yeah, BMW are confirmed; they're coming. 
Uh, I think that's been over a while now. If if Lamborghini and McLaren come too, that's going to be marvellous. Aston are rumoured to be bringing a new car next year as well. Oh, I forget the name of it, but there's a new road car coming along. Not the Red Bull one. Uh, that would be far too quick for a, a, G, a GT class. Uh, although it may be on pace for an LMP1. Uh, an LMP1 privateer car, but who knows. Uh, but yeah, Aston are going to be bringing a new car. Corvette might be bringing a new car. If they make a C eight eight R yeah, or C8. something, it's in C eight already. Uh, yeah, if if that if they make a GT version of that, then they'll probably bring that. So there could be a whole bunch of new cars and new names uh, waddling about in GT Pro next year. The question is, where are they going to fit them in the pit lane? Because there's only sixty spots. Oh uh, well, it looks like some of those P two mm. cars got to stay home. <laughs> yep. I don't know. You could always like uh, deny a few bronze licenses to the gentleman drivers and reduce the GTA class. <laughs> but, yes. Uh, uh, I think that'll be it for our Le Mans talk. We're gonna head into some more, well, some more calendar speculation. Because... If I could just drop one more thing on Le Mans quickly before we, um, before we move on, it's that uh, Thomas Laurent uh, is the first teenager on the overall Le Mans podium since Ricardo Rodriguez in 1960, which I thought is something that's worth pointing out. I believe he's 19 years old. Wait, how old so, is he? 19, I believe. Oh, God, I'm turning 20 tomorrow. Just this was recorded on Monday, so the 20th is my birthday, so that's, that's the thing. Yeah. You, you know who to at. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that's something I should drop in there. That is yeah, interesting. And also, uh, it's it's also rumored that the C8 is going the C8 Corvette. It's going to be a mid-engine Corvette. So <laughs> yes, that's true. That's a new approach for for Corvette. Um, got to got to keep up with the Fords. Yeah. <laughs> keep up. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but okay, moving on to calendar news. And it should be noted, I, I know we omitted this in our, in our Le Mans review, but a certain Chase Carey was there to start the race this year. <laughs> yep, with a vintage yes. mustache. Vintage mustache. Yep. I, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for all the photoshops of Chase Carey ra- waving the tricolor at the start to just be photoshopped into classic <laughs> motorsports I, events. I can... <laughs> I can tell you it has already happened. I saw it less than 30 minutes after we started the race. I'm going to die. Oh, man. And I haven't seen any There's, of it. I need to go looking for there it. There is no way I am ever going to be able to find it, but someone has someone done it. Someone has done it. Okay. <laughs> Into an actual... And they haven't just made the pictures black and white. No. They've edited him and his face and the flag, blurred it, for camera photography at the time and edited it into a picture from black and white grainy old camera days. It's a marvellous job. You may never see it, but it's there. Oh Someone God. did it. So I'm sure they're not alone. But okay. Formula One has... Well, Formula One and Formula E has announced their provisional calendars for next year. I'll run down Formula One's calendar first. For the 2018 season will again begin in Melbourne, Australia for the Australian Grand Prix on March 25th, followed by the Chinese Grand Prix on April 8th and Bahrain on April 15th, then heading much, much earlier to Baku 
April 29th, then the traditional... Boring. <laughs> boring. <laughs> then uh, we head to Europe. Well, head to Western Europe, uh, May 13th, to Barcelona. <laughs> then Monaco, May, May 27th. And here's where the calendar gets a bit controversial. Well, not this part, because, yeah, we know we're going to... Canada, June 10th, June 24th, Formula One returns to France. Then the next week, yes. we go to Austria, July 1st. Then the week after that, we go to Silverstone in Britain. A triple header weekend, y'all. <laughs> yeah, three. Yeah. No. More on that later. Yeah, more on that later. Three, three back to back race weekends. And they have a week off. They head back to Germany to the Hockenheim Ring. July 22nd, then July 29th, they head to Hungary, then the summer break, they return from the summer break August 26th to Belgium, then Monza September 2nd, Singapore September 16th, uh, Sochi is September 30th on the back again to the tail end of the calendar, then we head to Japan October 7th, uh, October 21st, we go to Austin 28th we go to mexico city november 11th we go to interlagos and then we finish the season in yas marina abu dhabi november 25th Ooh. man oh man wow. this Sorry. is a very very long calendar for next season <laughs> they somehow made another 21. 21 race calendar actually worse than 2015 I think it's because they 16, shifted yes. the calendar. Like they shifted the calendar, so Melbourne is the last possible weekend in March. Well, also mm-hmm. that puts Abu Dhabi the last possible weekend in November. Yeah. Yeah, which I think it all no it was no it was second to last last year I think. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, there was, was like it? Yeah, it, it was one more available oh, weekend sorry. in November but, left. Mm-hmm. But yeah, pretty much we're almost <laughs> yeah. we're almost like when is the year we're gonna have a December Grand Prix? <laughs> it, it's become year? a case of uh-huh. when rather than if now, isn't it? Because if they're talking about adding loads of US races and going to twenty five, I don't see them getting yes. up to twenty five. But if they're gonna go beyond twenty one, it's gonna need to happen. It's either gonna need to happen where probably Brazil gets moved to the start of the season in like February. <laughs> Yeah, we might have we, we might need to start having races in January again. Yep, lawyer like, yep, this race might as well be testing, but it's gonna be a race. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Besides that, like the biggest thing on the calendar is like they need to find a way to have all these European races without getting rid of the summer break, which is going to happen eventually. They're gonna have to scrap the summer break at some point because. Yeah, four like four of the five weekends in July will be racing in Formula One. Yeah, which is annoying because I give someone else the chance to take Lewis's record of winning every race in a given month, <laughs> <laughs> which is something I'm very proud of because that's such a weird thing to have happen. Because yeah. if you go back to uh, my dad, things who were uh, people who were watching F1 in the seventies and eighties when, um, oh, in the eighties when. They had, what, 15, 16 Grand Prix? Yeah. And now it's like, okay, we've got a triple header. Um, we're going to 21 races. Uh, there are four races in July. Um, yeah, that's 
that's quite a shift from the I think it was March to September, October time the season ran back in the day. When it was like the races were fairly spread out, like even though they had like 18 races, they started their season in either like South Africa in like January. (laughs) (laughs) But here's where like a lot of people have pointed this out on social media, where Formula E also released their provisional calendar where they're, they've been really trying hard to group these races close together. So the season opener will take place December 2nd and 3rd in Hong Kong. Then the next race will be in January in Marrakesh. Then February in Santiago, Chile. Then March, we go to Mexico. Again in March, we go to Sao Paulo, which, like, yes. I, I don't know where they're going to race in Sao Paulo. It's <laughs> not going to be Interlagos. I think it's going to be similar to the IndyCar mm, streets. No, it's definitely going to be in the city center. Yeah. yeah. Somewhere other. Yeah. They, they might my, use the, the INB some bottom again, like they did in India. Yeah. I was going to say, they like, might, I, they might yeah. do, just do the same circuit, but chop a bit off of them. Yeah, they're going to have to chop it a little bit. Yeah, then two races again in April, 14th in Rome, uh, 28th in Paris, uh, one race in May. They're going to be racing in Germany. We don't know where yet. It's just going to be in Germany. <laughs> hopefully, yeah, hopefully Tempelhof. I like, I like, I like what they're like, going I at. hope they make it a running thing at Tempelhof where they change the layout of Tempelhof every year just because they can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that would be the thing is, awesome. They need a Monaco... Sorry, Matt. They need a, a Monaco-style benchmark race that is the jewel in the crown. Every other year they have Monaco... So yeah. what? You know, every other year, mo- a Timport version of Monaco, so be it. And they had Punta del Este, they got rid of that for some reason. Yeah, it, it was supposed to be um, on the calendar which... this year, but the only date they could fit was in... It, it had to be in January, so this year they went to Las Vegas for the their e-race there. Uh, this year they're going back to Morocco and Marrakesh in January, so they can't go to Punta del Este. So yeah, yeah, which is a shame. But that was going to be their Jewel of the Crown. If what if they went for an alternative type Jewel of the Crown, the Templehof Circuit or the Templehof Facility? It's the same venue, but every year's a different track. I think that could be a Formula E style fan engagement. Sort of yeah, vote on this year's layout for the for Temple Hall. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Make make them vote on the on the on the, on the layout. That would be great. Yeah, like and hopefully it would be a bit more successful than the Brussels race, which I believe yes. is cancelled. The Brussels uh, race was for this, season. this year. Uh, then again, heading back uh, to the calendar, June 9th, they also have another race that is yet to be announced. And then we have the same double twin double headers for a season finale where they do July 7th and 8th in New York, and then July 28th and 29th in Montreal. Same exact weekends they had this year, um, but people don't like that they clash with the British Grand Prix and the Hungarian Grand Prix like they do this year. Like, wasn't it? Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to point it out. I no see. one cared this year, but next year, it's an issue. <laughs> I see. Uh. Fair enough. I mean, if you're planning to be at the British Grand Prix... If you have the budget to say, oh, I wanted to be at the British Grand Prix and at the New York Formula E race, or the, yeah, the New York Formula E race, then I'd say you, you're fine. <laughs> like, you, you, don't, you don't need, like, if you can afford to go to those two events in a relatively close proximity, but you're a little bit there on the same day, 
just enjoy yourself at, at yeah, whichever yeah. one you go to. You'll be fine. I, I know I'll be at like, New York E3 because it is very convenient for me, and there is no chance I'm going to the British Grand yeah. Prix. Was, yeah, I mean, there's no chance I'm going to go there <laughs> either. But it's uh, yeah. Doesn't the New York circuit go through your living room? I'm not entirely sure, but it um, it goes. The I haven't seen the New York way. I mean, that's a good point. They haven't used the New Jersey. No, there, no, have they? they they have one in the city proper at the at the uh, cruise port at the at the cruise ship terminal in Brooklyn. Oh. Yeah, it's like right on the water, and it has a view of the Lower Manhattan skyline. That's cool. Yeah, for some reason I thought they were going to use Manhattan, but then I thought to myself, well, they would never close Manhattan. <laughs> no, you, there's no way you could race in the part of Manhattan that is, like, well-known to people. Not even the New York Marathon, which is every year gets to go to Manhattan below, uh, below, like, 50th Street, which is, like, where everything notable is. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, again, and again, they're going to have their season finale in Montreal, which I'm pretty sure is, it's going to be a fan favorite in Montreal. Like, Montreal might as well be on the calendar. Like, it, I'm pretty sure it's going to be their traditional season finale. Yeah, that would be cool, because uh, Montreal's a great a great city. Uh, never actually been there, of course, but um, the Formula 1 event is, for me at least, one of the highlights of the year to watch. It's a great circuit. It, all the drivers are talking about how great Montreal is when they go there, um, and how great the vibe is in the city. An actual race in that environment, it can only be better, right? Like, it can't... Th there's no way that race can disappoint. If it does, oh, <laughs> but there's no way it can. Yeah, but it really doesn't sound like a bad shot. I, it also it's a great way to win the season. Yeah, like again, slowly but surely, Formula E is getting their you know calendar stalwarts together. I think we we talked about a Berlin idea. I hope we can, like I hope we can convince someone with some power in Formula E to make it a thing. But besides that, mm. it seems like Montreal is going to be on the calendar for a while. Don't know about New York, but New York is going to be there for next year at least. Uh, Paris seems to be is going to be there for a long time. I'm not a big fan of the Paris race. I don't think it produces great racing. Marrakesh is, seems to be going to be there for a while. I like Marrakesh as a venue. <laughs> yeah, I, it's I like, like the, the one Marrakesh it's the closest to an actual race circuit we can get to without it being Mexico. Again, Mexico is also on the calendar, but ooh, Mexico, I'm... Yeah. Uh, Mexico's okay. It's not. It's not great. It's not terrible. It's okay. Yeah, I guess it yeah. got better if they took out the chicane in the start. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Mickey Mouse chicane. Mickey Mouse chicane. <laughs> oh my god! But I, I think we have one new story left to talk about, and that is the addition of another street circuit to. A race series calendar but it's not formula e talking about indycar and we're talking about i wish rj was here because <laughs> tennessee is getting oh, the indycar race. he's gonna kill us when he listens to the episode ha <laughs> you went on it when we talked about it yeah. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> like uh IndyCar has raced in Nashville in the past, but it was on the Oval in Nashville, which, uh, 
as an oval, it wasn't that particularly like n- notable. It it didn't produce great racing. The crowds were the crowds were good, but it could have been better. But they're they're aiming to they're aiming to do a street circuit around uh, the stadium for the NFL team in Nashville, the Tennessee Titans. And it's great cross marketing. Yeah, it's great cross marketing. Uh, NASCAR has run races in NFL parking lots before. Like uh, they took up the the New York race that Bernie shut down because it was in New Jersey at the Meadowlands, uh, which is around uh, Giant Stadium, and they raced in Houston around Reliant Stadium in Houston. But like this track is going to be a lot, like fairly long street circuit. Like it's going to be uh, 1.7 miles long. One point seven. That. Is that that large for a street uh, circuit? For a street circuit in a parking lot? Yes. For an yeah. For an indie street circuit yeah, in a IndyCar parking well. lot? Yes, it's fairly long. <laughs> but again, like, they they bring up the last time IndyCar added a truly new venue to the, to the calendar, and that was Baltimore, where IndyCar went to Baltimore for three years, the streets of Baltimore, and... It was well attended, but it lost the city millions of dollars. And then oh, God. The, the last street race IndyCar tried to add onto the calendar, the Grand Prix of Boston, that just, like, oh. disintegrated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Within five yeah. months, it think, just, can... like, disintegrated into a shit show. People got sued. Uh, ticket money was lost. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. I think that was one of the first things you guys talked about on the M101 channel, wasn't it? The the failure of that... Um, yes, that rep- yes. The Grand Prix of Boston yeah. was a topic on the early parts of the show where I was went from excited to going to an IndyCar race to like, man, I hope this race still happens, to man, I hope everyone gets their money back after this. <laughs> and did they? It is good. Most people, like... Last time I checked, most people who bought tickets got their money back. Okay. That's acceptable, That's, yes. yes, acceptable. But uh, I, w- I wouldn't say acceptable. It's not as bad as it could be. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, the city of Nashville is, you know, very open to the idea. They think it can make the, the city of Nashville a decent amount of money. They feel like... They they actually noted the recent Stanley Cup final as a reason, like, oh, people in Nashville will turn out for sporting events. We should have more of these. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. See, it's like tap into a market that you didn't know was there. Oh, it's quite large. We'll, we'll have more of that. But, yep, hopefully uh, the, the, the company that... that started to host this Grand Prix the, the Grand Prix of Nashville, Tennessee hoped to raise 2.5 million dollars of private money before they start negotiating with the city so they're going to be running off mainly off their own money and also notable for why Nashville should have a race uh, uh, Firestone's headquarters is in Nashville, Tennessee Ah, so we found yeah. a sponsor <laughs> I see yeah, Maybe. so hopefully in two years' time, 2019, they're hoping to get a race in Nashville. 
And now we head into the mailbag. question from Charlie Reginbowl, who was on the show last week. He wants to know what our favorite Formula 2 slash GP2 moment hat is. What, what, what our favorite moment in series history is. And I'll... Do you guys have a moment, or is it just going to be me? Uh, I don't have the ability, because in, in Britain, uh, GP2 uh, Formula 2 is now is on yes, Sky. Sky. It's yeah. behind the table. We, we don't have access to that, and there are various totally legal ways of getting hold of that, but I just generally can't be bothered. Um, so I've only really watched a few races. Uh, I saw both the Bahrain ones this year, though, at the start of the season. I enjoyed both of them. I saw uh, one of the ones from Hockenheim last season. But other than that, no, I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, yeah me neither. I haven't watched a lot of GP2 or Formula 2 since I started watching... Um, the Sky TV through Total Legal Sources uh, a few years ago. Uh, but I think I saw on, uh, on YouTube once, I don't remember which season it was, I think it might have been 2012 or 2011, which I which had, I think, no, yeah, I think it might have been 2011, actually, because um, I think it was uh, Chilton and uh, someone else. Uh, it was in Barcelona, but they, they were uh, fighting for uh, for position and it was like and it was a really a tight fight all the way and uh i don't remember I, I, when i would watch the video on youtube i was really impressed by that but yeah apart from my vague memory of watching that video there's nothing i can say really okay hmm. i mean if, it, if we're going off vague memories so yeah. i'm just gonna throw out there uh george mullen who's a, a friend of the show uh sent me a link to a highlights clip of the final few laps of a GP2 race at Sochi oh from I think 2014 or 2015 <laughs> where it was and it, it was insane it was an insane amount of battling um, very entertaining so that will probably be a highlight of all that I've seen uh, but that that's not the largest pool yeah, like, uh, like out all there. the pe- circuits that people complain for Formula 1 that are boring usually like produces like incredible racing for Formula 2 it's it's the weirdest phenomenon. My favorite moment, uh, like I I I'm gonna avoid picking anything from the season, which was Stoffel season. Uh, I I think I really have to pick the 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 sprint race from the opening round this year. Uh, the the box and win from Charles Leclerc. Yeah. That I mean, sit. What was it? I think he was catching. The- First place and second place, with a few laps to go. And he started a lap of like four seconds behind, and he ended it yes, on the gearbox yes. or something. And then by the second half of the lap, he was in the lead, and then put like a forty-second gap or something silly in the remaining two laps. Um, historically inaccurate memory there, but you know, no. Charles Leclerc yeah. is fast. Like, I hope he doesn't end up in a situation where he wins the title and has nowhere to race in Formula One. Hmm. 
it, it would be a shame. Again, the driver market hitches so much of what Kimmy does yeah. that it's kind of... Kind of like down to what he, Kimmy does. Yeah, he could end up like an Antonio Giovinazzi and he's just sat in limbo waiting <laughs> for a seat, a permanent seat, that is not guaranteed to ever show up. But if it does, he'll probably be second in the queue to Antonio. Yeah. But, yeah, it'll probably be a hard. Okay, then we have a question from... Uh, yeah, we have another question on Twitter. I'm just going to briefly say, um, the question is, does Baku Circuit suck? Yes or yes? And I think it's a lot. <laughs> I, I, think that, I think that question just says so much about how complicated that circuit is. Yes, it, I really just want to try play devil's advocate and say no. I, I, I can't <laughs> even I can't. play devil's advocate to it. Like... <laughs> It, like the closest I could get to it, it does have interesting features. Like it does, it could make for an interesting circuit if the like if the cars were you know better you know better regulated to race there. Like you can't race there yeah. in modern Formula yeah. One cars; they're just too fast. Because the GP, I think a lot of people say that the GP two races from last yeah, year GP2 were great. Yeah, the GP two races there were great. Mm-hmm. And it goes back to, it's like, F1 sucks. Oh, but the junior formula are great. So there's that, <laughs> but yeah. And it, yeah, so that answers that question. Uh, we have one question from fan of the show, Who Said Romo. And his question is, Jackie Chan has built an IndyCar team. He needs to pick his engine and two drivers, but he gives us a limited driver pool. We have to pick, J- we have to pick from James Hinchcliffe, Alexander Rossi, Ed Jones, Spencer Pickett, and Connor Daly. Who should we suggest Jackie Chan sign as his drivers and engine manufacturer? Uh, I would go for Hinchcliffe and Jones with uh, probably a Honda engine because Honda is certainly getting a lot better in IndyCar at least. Yeah. So. And, and my and Hinchcliffe is already a proven driver, but Jones is has, is proving himself a lot this year. So yeah, if you want a strong and stable lineup, <laughs> get Hinchcliffe and Jones <laughs> on the engine. Yeah, I think I, just not on yeah, ovals. Yeah. yeah, I'm pretty. I'm pretty much almost in agreement with you. I'd go. Oh yeah, I think I'd go Honda. I'd I'd pick Ed Jones. And damn it, damn it, I'm gonna pick Spencer Pickett. Hmm. Now, what's, it, what's interesting and slightly annoying about that is I would have said, showing my massive Honda bias, <laughs> that yes, you should go with a, a Honda, um, a Honda, it's insane, it's ridiculous how biased but uh, go with a Honda engine. Uh, definitely Ed Jones. I'm a big fan of Ed Jones. Uh, I hope he is able to keep his rides going because he's got a long career ahead of him, long and successful career ahead of him if he can keep keep himself in, in the sport. Uh it is Hitch. What were the drivers we had to choose from? Okay, drivers you have to choose from: James Hinchcliffe, uh, Alexander Rossi, Ed Jones, Spencer Piggott, and Connor Daly. Well, we know Connor Daly. I mean, that's just a default. <laughs> um, but <laughs> hi, Brendan. Uh, yeah, I probably go. I probably go Hitch as well. You go Hitch, just because he's. I think he's gradually refining himself up to be a championship contender, as weird as that may be to say, given that he's not really in it this year. 
I think he's sh- starting to show the pace and and the consistency in a sense to to eventually be there. Spencer Pigger, I don't know enough about his his results. Okay. Well, long story short, I agree with Matt. Yeah, you heard our line of us, Romo. You get back to us on that and. Okay, another question from Ollie on Twitter. What are your thoughts on Robert Kubica potentially making his way back into Formula One? And I think this is more in a reference to the recent comments from Renault team boss Cyril Abitable, where he basically said uh, that Robert wasn't on their list for 2018 as a full-time driver. I guess um, that, that will make sense because sorry, um, I'll be quick. Uh, that will make sense because no, Kubica uh, is, has been out of the of the car for what seven years yeah. now, and what seven six years, and um, and there's really no way that you can, apart from the private test, which we we we've heard it's good, but we haven't seen we, we haven't seen or heard anything apart from that. Yeah, right? and so again, in the private test, it should uh, be noticed. It should be noted that he can't use uh, current equipment, so he can't use any cars from this season. True, especially these new cars because they're so, as we heard from the drivers, are so heavy on the on, uh, such a heavy toll on the body. Uh, I wouldn't, I wouldn't imagine, I wouldn't begin to imagine Kubica doing too well or going on for too long in one of the current cars. So yeah, I'll probably agree that we we. Might not see Kubica in for another, another full year. Yeah, like again, it. Yes, he said he could do a full race distance, but that was in the previous generation of cars. Like, it will be a struggle for him to compete in the current iteration of cars, where I don't think he could last a full race distance at a hundred percent. So I, I mm. think. A bit of bull's comments make sense, especially when they have a lot of, you know, promising young guys in the pipeline, whether it be Sergey Sorokin or Oliver Rowland, guys who are going to be around much longer than Robert Kubica. I, I really like I I see the the Robert Kubica hype train in like full motion, and I I really don't want to say that. Robert doesn't stand any chance of being in Formula One, but it's looking l- less and less likely. Yeah, pretty. Hmm. Uh, personally, I'd love for it to happen. I think it'd be a great story for the sport, for him, for the coverage of F1 in Poland, because apparently since these comeback rumors have started with the test and everything, coverage in Poland has, like, interest in the Polish media has, like, skyrocketed. There's a huge amount of interest and attention on it, uh, which is great, because that's more people uh, interested in the sport. I think it'd be great to happen. Do I think it can happen? Yes, honestly, because he says he's never been fitter in his life. He says he's the fittest he's ever been. Uh, and he did drive at a top level in the 2006, 7, 8 cars. So I don't see why he can't step up to a 17 car. It's just a case of will the opportunities present itself. And it's less likely that it'll be midway through this year. But maybe maybe there is something for next year. Maybe he can put himself back in the driver market for next year for anyone. Uh, which who knows how that could pan out. Salba. Yeah, who who knows? knows what could happen? Like I know uh, Cyril Bitable also stated in that same interview that they're keeping Julian Palmer for the entirety of this year. 
Which again, hmm. like no, it, yeah, but... that didn't make headlines because obviously no one cares that Palmer's staying the whole year. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, we have two questions from Shawnee F1. Uh, first question: Which race was more boring? Italy 2016, Mexico 2016, Russia 2017, Monaco 2017. Italy 2016 because at least in Monaco we had like uh, yeah like what do we have I, I can barely remember but like uh, in, in Italy I do remember nothing because uh, nothing happened on that it was just a procession from beginning to end so it's a basic Mon Monza race uh, but in Monaco we had a, a, a slight upset near the end but that was about it yeah slight upset near the end I have to go Monaco like like Monaco was the least boring. Uh, Mexico, you did have that drama near the end where uh, oh, <laughs> Max Verstappen showed out of the podium <laughs> room. So, yeah, I have to go Italy 2016. Mm. Are, are we going for which, yeah, which one was most boring? We've both gone Italy 2016 so far. Sochi 2017. Monaco, Russia, okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> See, I didn't go for Russia because we had a different winner, yeah. <laughs> uh, a new, a new F1 winner that race. Yeah, so that, it's that was slightly, great and slightly new. The, the chase at the end of the race was mm -hmm. the only saving grace of, of that yeah. race. But up until then, no, nothing, nothing. Yeah, it's also the same reason why why I don't think uh, Baku. People say Baku last year was was boring, but like as a race, it was boring, but. In the larger picture, it wasn't because it's a new track and we didn't know what, what we could do, so we were all kind of hyping a little bit. I would I would say that uh, despite Palmer spinning at one point, Hungary was Hungary was uh, was the the most boring of all because I literally cannot say a single thing that happened <laughs> apart from Palmer spinning yeah. in Hungary because I just did not pay attention at all to that race. Uh, in terms of Hungary 2016, obviously I can re remember Jensen's. Uh, things on the radio because that was uh, the one race yeah. where the radio rules changed for the fifth time <laughs> in about as many hours. That's right. And that's right. That was after Rosberg got his got his own radio penalties on the in Great Britain. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, everyone was ignoring uh, the safety issues up until I think Germany. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that was quite a boring race. So much of my man won it. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was. It, that wasn't very nice. But I, I'd still say Sochi this year was more boring. Okay, and we have second question from Shawnee F1. Uh, do you think Dr. Jerry Punch from, you know, ABC's coverage of IndyCar and NASCAR sounds similar to Vice President Mike Pence? And I just have to say... I never tried to listen for that. <laughs> I'd have to say absolutely not. I mean, I've heard a lot of Mike Pence's voice over the past couple of months, and I've heard a lot of... Dr. Jerry Punch's voice over my entire lifetime watching American motorsports coverage, and to me, they sound like absolutely nothing alike. I I can't remember what uh, either of them sound like. <laughs> well, really, uh, if you watch uh, uh, IndyCar in Detroit, uh, Dr. Jerry Punch was one of the the pit lane reporters. The Indy 500, yeah, too. and the Indy 500. You can, actually, Indy 500 is better because you have both Mike Pence <laughs> and Jenny Punch it on the yeah. same race, so you can yeah. actually do a direct no. comparison. I've not heard... I, I, I've heard Jerry Parks, almost certainly, but I don't think I've really heard Mike, Mike, yeah. Mike Pence speak, so no, I, can't, I can't make a comparison, but... 
Okay, and last question from RJ O'Connell. <laughs> uh, RJ wants to know, who do, who do we feel was the driver who gave the most outstanding individual performance, regardless of result, at the 24 Hours of Le Mans? And man, oh man, we have a lot of like mm. it's it's hard to say which driver gave the best individual performance because that 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 race was a struggle. <laughs> that was a race was a struggle for everyone involved. Yeah, there was a lot of good driving. Uh, I'm looking at GTM. It's not going to be there. Uh, like, ooh, I wanted to give it to one of the the guys in the, the Porsche, the, the number two Porsche, because to do what they did, to not give up and to put down consistent lap after lap to overtake the entire yeah. P2 field. Yeah, to unlap and overtake everybody in the entire field and end up where they did was, was impressive. So, yeah, they certainly did well. Yeah, one of them has to give it, but but because I personally didn't like realize the pay attention at least much to individual performances because when I, when I see in endurance races, I always see like the cars in general. I never see uh, one just one the poor person driving at that point in yeah, time, except when something screws up in the middle. Because <laughs> then that's usually the highlight. But um, yeah, it's really hard to pick one for me. Yeah. But I would have to go with one of the number two. Yeah, I have to go with one of the number two drivers because it number one that was that was a, like a team effort from every guy who got behind the wheel, and man, I don't think I'll ever see anything like we'll, we'll probably never ever see anything like that. Someone goes from second bottom to overall race victory. Mm. That it's gonna be it's a tough act to follow for the twenty eighteen <laughs> twenty four hours for sure. <laughs> in, in terms of overall performance, I'd throw out uh, a note to Jean Eric Verne who drove more than ten hours, which is the most of any driver true. in the entire field. Wow. Uh, which is a good job. And Thomas Laurent, I know I mentioned him earlier, but nineteen years of age, not cracking under pressure, and bringing the car home for the class win and second overall. Uh, I don't think I think Hopin Tung brought the car home, but you know what I mean. Um, he, he was the one that had to soak up a lot of the the, the two cars catching, and didn't didn't put a foot wrong. So yeah, I, I'd probably say him personally. Okay, and I, uh, I think that's gonna be the show. Do you guys have any closing comments to make before we sign off? Uh, <laughs> not, not really. really. McLaren Alfa Romeo, McLaren Alfa Romeo, going to happen? Enjoy your day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, I could say that as an ironic shout out to driver of the race, it would be Fernando Ruiz because he he kind of he blamed that the rookie drivers for not being qualified well, but then what happens is in the middle of the race, um, the number fifty, I think, he's the one that was driving the the fifty Corvette. Um, it it crashes out, and then who's driving the car when that happens? It's Fernando Ruiz. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really karma, really well, biting back. Yep. Isn't that marvelous? Well, yep. Uh, that was yeah. the show for this week, guys. If you like the show, uh, you could follow me at Ryan Eric King, as Dre would say. That's Ryan. That, that's Ryan Eric King with two Ks. Uh, you can follow uh, Matt Carnero at Skellingtor on Twitter, and you can follow uh, Joshua Bond at JoshBTCC. Yeah. That's the one. 
And again, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud. And if you've really enjoyed the show, you could support us on Patreon so we can get even more content out for you guys. And sorry, Nara, as Dre would say. Yep. Bye. Bye. Like I'm not you are the world!